Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Ocean Yap Pal. We're at Barrio in Portland. It's June 7th, 2021. Ocean, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for being here. Uh, first question, biggest question. Why wine? Why wine? Why not wine? <laughs> wine, to me, goes with everything. Um, my favorite pairing right now is that wine goes with the revolution. So how can we break down these barriers that we have, not only in the wine industry, but um, in our society? And what better way to talk about shit over a glass of wine? So that's really my big motivation, is that wine can be a connector, um, and there's truly a wine for everyone. So let's talk about life before wine a little bit. Uh, where did you grow up, and uh, what we tell about kind of growing up education? Yeah, growing up, I grew up um, in Oregon. Um, I grew up in Central Oregon and Sisters and in Eugene. Um, I learned a lot from the hard work of my mother. So mom was always working really hard and always encouraging us to just be true to ourselves. Um, so I had a. I do have a learning disability, so in public education, um, especially in Eugene, there was a lot of great resources for me to learn um, in a different environment. And instead of being embarrassed by that, I just like thrived in that. So I always knew that, um, you know, learning and getting more education was just going to be different for me. And now living with that as an adult has really motivated me to be more creative, especially in this wine industry. So I have to thank mom for that one. <laughs> what about after high school? So after high school, kind of was like, what am I going to do? Going to college, went to PCC. Um, I was a nanny for a little bit during that time and was just kind of like, what the hell am I going to do with my life? I actually, shortly after being at PCC, my best friend was playing a gig at a local vineyard and it wasn't too far from my house in Portland. And I was like, well, I can meet you there. And it's the first time that I ever spent $35 on a bottle of wine. They only sold it um, by the bottle. And I was like, well, I know Pinot Noir. I mean, Pinot Noir grows great here. I was like, I guess I'll take a bottle of that. This shit better be good. And I sat down and I had one sip of it and that was just like the wine bug instantly. I mean, it was absolutely beautiful. It was a 2008 Pinot Noir. Um, and I was looking around at this estate and saw the owners running around and learned out quickly that, you know, people that have small businesses, they'll need help with everything. So afterwards, I grabbed the owner, Melinda, up at Garden Vineyards, and I was like, hey, if you need any help, like, I'm free on the weekend and I'm not doing anything this summer. And she threw her arms around me and called me at eight in the morning the next day. And so I got right to work. Um, I didn't know, again, I didn't know anything about wine, but they had um, five varietals to work with. So they had a sparkling, they had a Chardonnay, a white blend, a rosé, and then a Pinot Noir. And so I just stood there and listened to Melinda chat to people all day and just really picked up on the way that she not only was so comfortable talking to people, but just that joy that she was able to like bring and teach people about her estate and their vineyard. Mm -hmm. And that was just easy for me. I was like, this is gonna be an easy summer. So I ended up being there for two whole years. Um, I wanted to learn more about production um, in the vineyard. And so that's when I found Bertoni Faustin at Abbey Creek. So the, by the time I met Bertoni, it was like 2013. 
and it was harvest was about to start and it was like one of the worst harvests ever. It was like super great all season and then the rain just came down. And so Bertoni ended up picking everything that he had on his 12 acre vineyard. And I, he was like, all right, just bring your rain pants. And again, I just got emerged right into it. I was uh, had a midnight crush, so I was working with Bertoni all the way until like one in the morning, that whole harvest, which is really wild. Um, but I loved it. I was like sticky and ruined my raincoats and just all that acid from the grape juice was just a wild feeling. Um, so then I was with Bertoni for um, three years and you know, super small um, business owner. He maintained the vineyard and the cellar and the tasting and the wine club all by himself. So when it was, um, when I was working with him, it was just him and I doing everything. So during the week, we'd be in the vineyard, weekends in the, in the cellar um, and in the tasting room. So kind of got to see that whole turnaround, which was really important for me to see where wine comes from and it truly starts in the vineyard. So I'm curious, you mentioned getting kind of bit by the wine bug almost immediately once you tasted it. Once you had tasted wine, tell me about like the education of yourself in wine. How did you learn about wine terms, wine places, wine grapes, varietals, all the things you had to know? What was the learning process like for you and what did you enjoy about it? The thing that, you know, I was thinking about this today actually and it's like how did I learn? And how I learned about wine was all through exposure. I didn't go to school to get a formal education about wine. Um, I just learned right there on the spot. And I think that that is, you know, that's a really positive way for me to learn. And I also saw it as a super accessible way for other folks to learn. And that's what one of my main goals for Rootstock is about is that there's people that want to learn about wine, but there's just no, they're not exposed to wine. And that's why we're here today at the Barrio because this is a very important place where it's like, we're gonna bring wine country, Oregon wine, to the city. So this is happening right here. This is folks that live out here deep on the east side that, you know, they live in this state that grows world-class wine and it's overwhelming. I don't know where to go. Maybe I can go out to wine country, but maybe I don't have a car. I don't, I can't afford these tasting fees, but I can come here and learn with Ocean. I have many more questions about Rootstock that we were going to get to, but I'm also curious, uh, you mentioned also kind of learning, kind of watching other people do hospitality and learning hospitality mm -hmm. that way. Tell me what was uh, sort of important, valuable to you about, what, what did you learn from watching other people do that that was important to you to go for? What were the things you took away from on a hospitality scale? I think hospitality for me was just something that came really naturally. Um, seeing that person walking through the door, you never know who you're going to be dealing with. You know, you don't know if now, most people can be pretty rude, but you can also, you're behind that bar and you can contribute positively to that exchange and really help people feel welcome. And I think I learned from a lot of folks that, you know, didn't treat me in a welcoming way in places that I visited, especially in the wine industry. And I would take those pieces and I would remember, I was like, I would never treat somebody like that. It just limits you to any connection that you could have in your daily life and so for me it's just I'm going to treat people how I would want to be greeted I'm going to meet them in that middle if they are going to be someone that is a little bit more challenging like it's just again it's just wine you know we're just talking about some wine some fermented grape juice and if they can be that serious then that's their own um, that's their own work but I know that I just remind myself every day that this is my work and this is how I want to present myself <laughs> Um, and who I'm, who I'm working with. 
So you mentioned working with Bretonnia when Bretonnia was just getting going and was still just kind of doing everything. So tell me about, first of all, I'm curious, your initial impressions of Bretoni when, when you met him. Uh, what, what, what did you first think of him? Wow, when I first met Bretoni, um, he was working at Sake One. So he was this larger-than-life character that was making sake mojitos. And I was like, what the hell is that? I need one. So I couldn't wait to go bug him for one. And I think when Bertone and I saw each other, it was in a sea of whiteness. So seeing him, and I think he saw me, and we kind of looked at each other like, what's that? <laughs> you know, kind of like, I see you, you see me. Um, and it was that, that was our first exchange. And then he knew where I was working, so it was like a couple years later when I really got to talk to him. And when I went, I seriously just wouldn't ask him if he needed any help. I went and asked for that job. And he was like, okay, I mean, I would, I'll take your help. You can work with me. And he was kind of like, I don't know, she's really gonna do this. Like he had one employee before that. She really wasn't too much of an employee. Like she was just there for help. Um, but I mean, I really proved to him and to myself that I wanted to be here. And I did that every day that I was with Bertoni. So what were some of the what were some of the tasks you had to do? Maybe maybe surprised you in a small one person kind of one person business. What what did you have to do? What was your day What was your day to day role like? What did we not have to do? We had so much shit to do every day. <laughs> we did a lot. You know, I had a really awesome opportunity to not only get um, down and dirty with the grapes, but when I met Bertoni, our whole his whole vineyard was going through like what he called a rehab. So it was a hobby vineyard that an orchard. Um, uh, uh, like an orchard family like had been taken care of um, and so they just didn't know what to do with these grapevines we had ones that were like taking a knee that one of them looked like a big U of O oh like they were just not with it and so Bertone and I would go through and we were seriously chopping these huge vine stalks to grow a new straight up one and that was pretty insane to do I mean it was kind of hard to like cut something that has been living for so long but it's just you know vines or weeds so they're gonna be they're gonna be just all right I think that was probably one of my favorite parts but it actually taught me something too that I didn't realize is that being in the vineyard all week not talking to anybody but Bertoni or just listening to podcasts and music and being out there in nature um, I really liked it I really truly enjoyed it and then by the weekend came this big outgoing personality to myself. I didn't, really didn't want to talk to anyone. I was probably sunburnt and tired anyway, but I was like, wanted that solitude back of being in the vineyard. So that was really a different change that I kind of had to adjust to. Mm -hmm. um, working at Abbey Creek, I also was given the opportunity to pursue like hobbies that I never would have been able to do without working there. So I became a beekeeper for those three years that I was um, at Abbey Creek and I also developed a terrible bee allergy. <laughs> so now I have to carry an EpiPen everywhere. So you get stung enough, um, it just gets worse and worse every time. And so the last time I got stung, um, I got stung right on the lip, right through the supposedly best bee suit ever. Um, and I had to go to the emergency room. And I was even with my bee consultant who mom knows. Mom's also queen bee over here, but it was, uh, pretty scary. <laughs> I imagine. Yeah, imagine. so, um, you know, I can't work harvest anymore. I definitely put in that work to know the whole process and how much hard work it goes into harvesting, but um, can't be around those bees. What was the, when you were doing the kind of the customer service side of, of Abbey Creek, what was the atmosphere like? What was it like being at Abbey Creek and, and having customers coming in? You know, Every Creek was super interesting. I mean, we were located in North Plains, so just outside of um, 
Hillsborough, and it's a pretty small town. I mean, it's the one main drag out there, and it's a pretty white town. I mean, again, it, for Tony and I, being in the industry and working in the industry, and him being an owner, winemaker, you know, he, people still thought that I owned Abbey Creek, and I think that there was really challenging days, and I know that him and I definitely kind of got stuck in this rut of constantly trying to prove yourself as a person of color. You are always having to prove yourself to white people, um, and I would say some days were easier than others, but what we always reminded ourselves of is that nobody's going to love this more than we could. And so if we just show people how much we love what we're doing here, I mean, that is attractive. People are going to pick up on that energy and fall right in love with you. So we'd have like these cowboys that like never, ever would drink wine, but now they're like hanging out there and they're club members. So it's just, again, like we don't discriminate. You know, we've been discriminated against enough that we know that we cannot participate in that way and judge someone else. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about what you saw in terms of the progress there, uh, both in terms of the growth of the brand, but also in terms of the kind of acceptance of Bertoni in the industry while you were there. Yeah, I think Bertoni and I put in a lot of work together, just me being not only his employee, but being his friend. Mm -hmm. um, we had a lot of long conversations in the vineyard, you know, the red, white, and black documentary was a um, a motivation of all the shit talking we do in the vineyard, you know, so it really just pushed us to be like, well, what are we going to do about it? You know, like actions into words. Mm -hmm. um, and to see Bertone's growth now is like, it's incredible. And I think that he's still not recognized to the point that he he just like wants to be. Mm -hmm. You know, he is an interesting person because he doesn't see himself relevant to the wine industry. And that's where him and I differ. Um, I actually really love wine. I love drinking wine. I'm always trying new wines, but Tony doesn't drink. So having that, you know, having that be part of his identity of like not enjoying wine the same way that I do, I think that's, it's just it's a different way of being, you know. You mentioned red, white, and black, and obviously uh, a pretty, pretty big project for for him and for the for the industry. Uh, what was your role with it, and and what did you see come out of it? Um, you know that film is awesome. I love that film. I love the idea of it, but I think it could have been a little bit better. I think that it failed to include. It failed to be more inclusive. It failed to bring in more voices and voices of consumers. I was a part of that beginning of the film and I was super excited to be a part of it and share my story as a woman of color um, and a queer woman. So checked all three of those boxes. <laughs> but I got let go of the film because um, they didn't think that I was relevant because I wasn't a winemaker. And that really hurt me. I mean, that hurt me for, I would say like six months, I didn't even drink wine. I drank only whiskey or beer. <laughs> and I was just mad at the wine industry. I was like, how can I not be relevant? And I do have to say that that hurt pushed me to be where I'm at today. Not thinking that somebody is irrelevant just because they are not a winemaker limits you to a whole range of people that want to be a part of this industry. And you're mostly cutting off consumers, mm -hmm. and that's hurtful. You have communities, cultures, identities that want to participate, but, and you have people in the industry that want to participate, but then all of a sudden these, these folks become gatekeepers themselves. And that's what has to change. 
So after Abbey Creek, where did you go next? Abbey Creek, I went. Uh, Abbey Creek, I went to Kramer for about um, nine months, and that was awesome. So uh, second generation woman winemaker Kim Kramer and her mom Trudy. I got to spend a lot of time with Trudy Kramer. Um, which is so close to my heart because she is a hoot. She is one of the first woman winemakers in our state of Oregon, um, and now her daughter brings this new passion for sparkling wine um, to the brand. And I learned so much about that family because it's like it's very family owned. Like they do everything together, and they're very successful. They really care about each other, and they really care about their employees. Like I worked a lot of different places, but at Kramer, they were just so kind and generous to me. So I was really grateful for that time there after being kind of uh, hurt at my other place. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was there, I was like, you know what? I think I need to I need to learn some stuff. So I went back to school. I finished last year from Portland State um, debt-free with my degree in sociology and minor in special education. Thought I was going to be an educator, kind of always thought that I wanted to give back to those students what was given to me at that age. Um, and, you know, COVID hit, you know, right during graduate, I had a virtual graduation, which was wild. You know, it was right in the middle of the social unrest, right after George Floyd was murdered. I was upset, I was hurt, I was scared, um, and I needed to work. So I kind of jumped back into the wine industry, working at um, the Portland Wine Cellar. Always kind of worked there on and off for about, I guess it's been almost six years now. Um, but, you know, working in a retail shop is um, a really fun way to pass the time. You get to try wines from all over the world, um, and I can sell um, bottles to folks and really share these stories that um, attract me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it was a hard summer. It was hard to figure out what I was going to do next. Um, and then this is where I turned my actions, my thoughts into action um, to start my own rootstock. So I have one more question for you before I ask about Rootstock. Okay. You mentioned retail as kind of you've worked all the different parts of the industry now. So you've worked you know worked for oh, yeah. four wineries for a venue. I'm curious with retail, um, what was your sort of favorite part of it, and what was the biggest challenge? My favorite part of retail is like it's my total safe environment. You know, I know these wines, I know how they're made, um, I know the producer, I know the winemaker. If I don't know, then I can learn a little bit more about it. But I'm in a cool air conditioning room. <laughs> I get to meet all different types of folks that come in looking for wine and I think one of my favorite things to do is when somebody walks in and they want my help. Um, our shop has about 1100 um, facing labels and so it can be really overwhelming um, even for me um, but when somebody comes in and they just want to talk about wine I love that. I love that experience. I love to share with people um, new wineries, old wineries, um, unique varietals. We have a little bit of everything because again, during this past year, we've sold an additional 10,000 bottles than we normally have before COVID. And so people are drinking more wine than ever, and we are too. So we are exposed to a lot of these awesome, unique wineries from all over the world. Um, and there's so many emerging wineries too that we get to um, try the wine and see if it'd be a good fit for the shop. Um, I don't think I really have a least favorite. I think it's, um, I think the least favorite thing would not really have to do with like the shop. It's just the fact that people um, 
maybe think wine shops are not for them, so they feel more comfortable shopping at Safeway, where wine shops are literally free education. You don't know how to say this one varietal, but you want to try it, ask that person working at the shop because they're there for you. It's their job. If they don't know how to say it, they can be honest with you and be like, let's learn about it together. So hopefully they're doing that. I do that, I know. But I think it's um, a really great way, especially if you do work at a wine shop, to continue to expose folks to wine. Mm -hmm. What do you find when you're selling wine? What do you find is the most, what do people respond to the most? Is it, is it the wine itself? Is it the story? Is it the label? Like what, what, sells, what sells wine? I think it depends. Um, for me, I know that I definitely always lead with the story. Um, and that usually, I would say like 90% of the time, um, people will buy a bottle because of that story that I shared with them because they can now take that story and share it with whoever they're sharing the bottle of wine with. Um, I start with a story, so you, instantly you're connected to the story, and then then I will tell you about the wine because I've had it, so you know this is good. <laughs> you know I'll tell you about the acidity, um, you know maybe the harvest year, like what, what was it like that year, just to kind of get you thinking of like what these grapes have gone through, um, and then it's the price. So sometimes I do ask that per ask the folks that come in, um, you know, how much are you trying to spend? And there's no wrong answer. I mean, we get people coming in sometimes that are like, what's your most expensive bottle? I want that. And it's like, well, it's Cristal. It's $350. You can get that or you can get this Louis Roder, which is the same exact wine for $100. You know, it's just like that brand label. Some people want to spend that money and they can go ahead. He's like, People will be like, I want to spend, you know, anywhere from $80 to $300. I'm like, okay, well, here's the $300 one. I've only tried once, but here's this other great one, you know? So it's like kind of breaking down that level of meeting people where they're at. Um, we have bottles of wines that range from all the way up to $300 to um, $9. All right, so we talked about, you mentioned Rootstock a couple of times. So yes. tell us about the, the genesis of the idea and what, what your kind of initial goal for Rootstock was. Where did it all start? I think for me, rootstock, you think about what rootstocks are. Rootstocks are the new vine, the root that is grafted to the old vine stock. And these rootstocks are chosen for their resistance. So when a vine is struggling to thrive in the environment, um, they will choose a rootstock that is seriously chosen for resistance. They graft it to that existing vine stock and it uses the roots that are already existing and it just adds value to the production of the fruit. And for me, I just was reading that definition and I was like, that is me. I am seriously a rootstock. Like I am still here in the wine industry because of my existence. And Oregon has very deep roots, um, not only in the Oregon wine history, but just our, as our whole state in general. Um, a lot of roots that were based on racism and sexism and classism. And um, it's a time for us to change. We, especially in the wine industry, I was thinking about, you know, one of my favorite producers is Adelsheim. David Adelsheim was one of the first folks to plant um, grapes here in Oregon. And they're still relevant today, but it's also like a new story needs to be told. And that story is from my generation. So we are the new rootstocks. We acknowledge and support that existing roots that were already there. But we are here to say that you need now you need us to survive. You need us to support you, just like how we need you to continue to support us. Mm -hmm. So with that, 
what when you founded Rootstock, what was it? What's what's it going to be, or what is it? What is it going to do? So for Rootstock, I was like thinking about the way that we are taught about wine. We learn about wine either at the tasting room or at a bar or at a restaurant, and sometimes that way that we learn about it is not accessible. It's not accessible to everyone. Um, what Rootstock is here to do is to support you and bring wine to the city. Um, my initial idea was really about bringing all the stuff that I love about Oregon wine country to Portland, yeah. into the city where just nothing like that exists. You can't just go pick up these unique small wineries. Um, you can find them at the, at the wine shop, but how are you going to learn about it? And so for me, I'm like, I'm such a hype kid. Like if I love something, I'm going to tell everyone about it. And one thing for me is true is that I love small producers. I love BIPOC winemakers. I love women winemakers. I love that story. I love who's behind the bottle. And I do this often with my friends. I'll find a bottle and we'll just pour it and we'll talk about wine in a way that I don't even know how I'm doing it, but it's approachable, right? It's about being empowered. It's about accessibility and it's going to always be about representation. So we just had our first event here at the Barrio. Um, it was a kind of a soft event, so it was people that I knew um, and some industry folks. So it had a big range of folks that maybe have been working in the wine industry forever, you know, 20 plus years to folks that are just now starting to drink wine. And so we talked about wine in a very different way. So it was a part social, part education experience. We poured four different wines. Um, they were all women winemakers. And we just connected. I mean, everybody had a little seating chart and I sat folks where I thought they would really vibe off of another person. And so not only is it about learning about wine and um, empowering each other, but it's always going to be about community and connection. So at each Rootstock event, there's going to be new folks that come, um, and you're going to just always know that you are going to gain tools and connect with people. So in addition to the events, or with, with the events, uh, how often and what types of events are you, are you picturing for the future? I think the coolest thing about Rootstock is that it's limitless. I think the first event is something that we could do here again at the Barrio. We could do it at another location, feature different wines, talk, chat. We did it for about an hour, um, and it was awesome. The other cool thing about Rootstock is that it could be like mobile, and it can stretch across to so many different industries. Um, you know, I could, I've done this just for friends too, is just setting up a day for you in wine country. If you do truly want to go out wine tasting, it's overwhelming with all the wineries we have. What do we have, like over 900 of them now? I can help you plan your trip and tell you where the what the best places are to go because I care about those wineries and I know that they will take care of their people too. Um, one thing that really is important to me is that it is always accessible. I think that's one thing that is really forgotten, not only in the wine industry, but in all areas of our lives. You think about access and how challenging it must be, um, and then think about being deaf or hard of hearing. It's just even more challenging, and it's not structured for you. So having those open conversations. if you know, somebody deaf calls the wine shop and they have VSR, they have the video relay person talking for a deaf folk, to know that this is not a telemarketer, know that this is someone, a customer. This is just a customer trying to talk to you about wine. You know, it's just all about exposure and um, that continued conversation of that this is for you too. 
when it came time to choose the wines you want to showcase, the wine brands you want to showcase, tell me what goes into that kind of decision-making process, knowing as much as you do and, and having all the brands to choose from. For me, the first one was um, my favorite wines. So I got to feature Kramer Bubbles. I got to feature um, Sheba Wishern, Akiko's wine, who truly has been a huge, um, just a, someone to look up to in the industry. I think I found Akiko right after I was kind of like in and out of the wine industry and I had no idea that she existed. And so to me, she is representation set on fire. And she doesn't really have intentions to be like that leader, that role model, and I understand that, but what she means to me is just so important. And so featuring her wine um, was, a, you know, no second thoughts at all. Um, we also featured, Chris has the bottle, um, it's this, it's called Pierce Riesling, so it's bottled actually in a beer bottle, so 500 mil, got a crown cap on it, and it's got these gold chains on it, so I remember the first time I saw that label, you know, it just, in a, on the shelf it can be overwhelming to look at it, but if you can find something that is relatable and can connect to you and your culture, um, suddenly things feel a little bit more easy. So I think it was really important to show not only that label, but wine in a different format. It's okay, wine's just gonna taste great out of this format. And then we ended with um, one of my other favorite winemakers, Christina Gonzalez um, from Gonzalez Wine Company. And she, her and I have been friends for a while and she truly is one of the most talented winemakers. Her story is amazing. Again, just being a woman of color, she has um, a lot to contribute to the industry and she gives a lot back to the industry um, as a woman of color. So for me, it's picking wines that, it's like a, who are you voting for? Where are your values? What are the stories that you want to share? And where's the good wine? And all four of those bottles are great winemakers. So with, for future events, what else are you looking to kind of shine a light on? What, what, what else is overlooked in Oregon wine? Um, for me, the next one, I think we're gonna do, you know, for a long time I was thinking that Rootstock was just gonna be BIPOC winemakers for BIPOC wine drinkers only. And I was like, well, that doesn't really represent my community. My community has a whole range of different identities in it. And doing that, I would become another gatekeeper. And that was something really important to think about of, you know, the highlighting the winemaker is definitely something that is really easy to do. We can always highlight them and talk about them. But we don't really have somebody that is just a leader. And I feel like Chris, who owns the bar, really pushed me to think about, well, you should just do it, Ocean. Like, People will show up for you. You know wine, you can talk about it. And then you can really be that person that shares it with it. I share the wealth. I'm a very selfless person. And so thinking about the next event too, it's like, well, why not? Chris loves winemaker Elena from Alumbra. And to have her, to support her and to hear about her wines from her is something that I would love to attend, you know? So I think it just works in different ways and it really depends on, um, depends on what people, what the community wants to hear. We did like a little survey, you know, so do you want to learn more about BIPOC wines? Do you want to learn about, you know, natty wines? I know some natural winemakers that can bring in samples of wine that is, was affected by smoke. So teaching the community about, you know, stuff that we hear about, but never having that opportunity or that exposure to it, we can learn it here at Rootstock. Rootstock is here to help. 
like that. You got a new slogan if you didn't already. I like that. <laughs> Wine for the people. For the people. Okay. <laughs> so if, what do you think the slogan should be? I, I was I was gonna say we're here. To, we're stuck is here to help. I like. We're I stuck like is here to I help. Like that. I like that. <laughs> you, you we'll have many. We'll have, have many, many different. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm curious about. I want to talk about challenges. I want to talk first about from your perspective. This is a big question. So from your perspective, what are the biggest challenges? The industry is facing that you can help solve. What, what is the big? What are the biggest issues you see that need solving? I think the biggest challenges that I see in the Oregon wine um, industry is that we see a lot of the same voices. I think that there's a lot of underrepresented and um, a lot of underrepresented voices that it's their time to speak. And like I had said earlier, you know, for a long time it was like oh, I need to go ask this winery for help. I need to go ask them for help. But now it's it's different. It's like, now you need us. It's not just, mom. My, one of my favorite sayings that my mom says is that if you're not at the table, then you're, at the, then you're on the menu. And it's extremely true. It happens in a lot of different industries. And thinking about that, starting a new, bringing more people to the table for wine is important, but maybe we just need to build our own new table. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that there's a lot of voices that this Oregon wine industry is just not even really ready to, to listen to. Um, I think that they still want to hold on to a certain type of control and um, they, they like that idea, but then they want to do it. But it's not that time. It's the time to actually let folks from that perspective share their story. So, so then, as you see it from your perspective, what are the biggest challenges that you face in trying to do that? Because that's a big, that's a, obviously a big task. Yeah. So, what's the biggest challenge for you? Biggest challenge is I'm broke as a joke. I don't have any money, <laughs> but what I have is connection, and um, I have connection. I have ideas, and I have that motivation, and I have community support. And I think in the long run, you know, that is that is more valuable than having a hundred million dollars. You know, I don't need that much money, but like, you know, just a little bit of money um, is a challenge. I think um, also a challenge is, is that I'm also on the Women in Wine board, and that's been a really awesome opportunity, but it's still hard, you know, like I, it's still hard to constantly have to prove yourself um, as a woman, as a woman of color, and um, as a queer person. So I feel like um, that there needs to be a shift in leadership. I feel like there does need to be a new table. Um, sometimes I don't think that people are ready for a lot of this big revolution that I do have inside of me to change, but all I want is genuine change. And I think that is possible when we kind of all just let it go and see the power that wine can have as a connector. So what will be, what what would be a success for you? What, if if you're looking ahead, what, what what would you be able to look back and say, I, this was successful because this happened? No, I was pretty hard on myself after the first event that we had here. I think talking to people that you know um, can be a lot more challenging to a bunch of strangers. Um, and I was like really hard on myself the day after, but I was looking through the pictures and what I saw was just happy faces. Like people left with with honest connections. People sent packages to folks like afterwards, they connected over the internet, like and just seeing everybody so happy. That's what I want. That's all I really want is for people to just feel comfortable. That I want them to feel empowered and I want them to know that this industry is for them too. 
So how are you going to go about marketing? What, what, are, you, what, are, the, what are your? How are you going to get let people know that you exist, and how are you going to kind of get work with the industry to kind of push that forward? Um, for me, it's like I know people that know how to do that, right? <laughs> so it's it's an ask. Um, I think right now too, it's um, an opportunity in our shift in our society. It's we're stepping into a new phase of existence, and um, marketing is just. You know, who do you know and like who do I want to share it with? Um, I have a lot of friends that are in all different types of industries, and I'm so grateful that a lot of them are just like stepping up and showing up for me. So to do that event here, you know, Chris didn't charge me for the space, he let me use his glasses. I just paid for the open bottles. So that right there was instant support. Um, I have another guy that helped me build my website for free. Like I, I asked him, and he did it. You know, so um, some of it is like, um, some of it is kind of like accountability for certain white people. I do have to say, but it's not in a terrible way. It's actually just the truth of it. You know, you you want to be an ally and you want to support. Then now's your time, and it's not a big ask. Um, it's just being part of the revolution and um, are you really doing as much as you can to support this community. So with that in mind, what have you already have you already seen changes since you've been part of the Oregon wine industry? Have you seen, have you seen positive changes as part of oh, the yeah. industry? What are the biggest yeah. changes? I've seen a lot of um, new change and a lot of new perspective and a lot of new asks too. A lot of people coming into our shop want to know who the BIPOC winemakers are. They want to know who the women winemakers are. Um, they want to know about, um, you know, growing practices. They want to know who's in the vineyard. And I think that shift is really important. I mean, and there's so many different parts of our wine industry that um, highlighting those that aren't talked about as much is just you know, what varietal is this, you know, like, who's this, who's that? It's just more, again, about those stories, like, who is, who's behind the bottle? And that's been really cool to see, you know, younger generations, um, people of color, um, and then also, like, older white women coming in and being like, do you have any Latino winemakers? <laughs> and it's like, yes, we do, right here, you know? Like, they would have never asked that five years ago. So um, that's been really fun to just see that shift and, um, in every every community. What about with from the industry itself? Obviously, that's that's sort of the consumer perspective. Is the industry following a similar path? Is it more accepting of different winemakers and wine drinkers yet, or is it? Have you seen progress in that regard? Um, I would say I've seen some. Um, I think that they can do a lot better. I think that we have some of the biggest, most powerful wineries here in our state, and we have a lot of people in positions of power um, that are just doing it for the title. And I think that if that's the case, then they need to step down, um, or they just need to step back. And I think that there's a big difference between stepping down and stepping back. Um, and I don't think that either of them they really want to do, but taking a step back is beneficial to everyone, right? Like it's, it truly benefits everyone. And we're not here to, you know, take over and like burn it all to the ground. Like that's what, that's why rootstock is such an amazing term because it's like, we're here to uplift each other. Um, and, you know, again, being a part of this wine industry for over 10 years now, even when I go out wine tasting, it's still just, I don't see too much change. 
I don't see too much change in the culture of the way that we talk about wine. And so I think it's time for us to redefine that and to um, just meet people where they're at. So you mentioned earlier that a lot of this kind of came about in 2020 and, and as a result of 2020. So I'm curious, we've, we've been asking everybody we talked to about 2020 because it's such a, a pivotal year for people. But I want to start with sort of with sort of the pandemic and its its effect on you and what you were trying to do and, and sort of what you did to respond to it. You talked about you talked about kind of the virtual graduation, but before that, what did you do to respond to to COVID? How did it affect your day to day life and, and the work you were trying to do? Oh man, it was unpredictable. You know, I was taking one of my last classes that I had of um, spring term at PSU was criminology. If I would have taken one more class, I would have been a minor in criminology. So that class to end on in 2020 was really interesting. Um, it was the day that George Floyd um, was murdered and my professor sent out an email to everyone and he's, he was a pretty quiet professor and this email was like lengthy and he just, it was, he's a white guy, but his reaction was, you know, it was really serious and it was really touching and he was like, I am so upset. Um, the final is optional. Like you guys need to take care of yourselves. Um, and if you need anything and resources, he left all these resources that we have at PSU. And I thought that was a true ally, you know, and it was hard with COVID. You know, you, you want to quarantine. You had to tell family members that you couldn't see them for the weekend um, because they all live in different communities. That was really hard. We had some really tough conversations, not only between the closest people, but to strangers, you know, and then we had protests. I wanted to be there, but I didn't want to be around people. But sometimes that push is just like, what are you fighting for? And so participating in those protests in the safest way that I could was what I felt like I needed to do. Um, and then they got to the point where, you know, how can I show up in other ways for my community? So knowing that the protests maybe weren't the safest thing for me to do, um, I found other avenues to show up for my community. So volunteering at uh, the Native American Youth and Family Center, delivering food for, the, for our community, um, you know, that was, that felt really good. Mm -hmm. You know, you are paying, you're paying just as much as attention. Um, to, so, what was the question? <laughs> oh, 2020, we're still stuck. Oh God, we're still stuck early we're, we're, in 2020. We're, we're in like June, man. Yeah. We've got a ways to go. <laughs> um, you know, we had a huge rise in wine sales. So working at the shop, it was probably like the busiest we'd ever selling bottles. We had no more events, no more in-person tastings. So we had to become more creative and thinking of how to bring wine to people. So I got to deliver wine. That was pretty cool. People were buying it by the case. Like I delivered three cases out to some airport hangar one time. Like people were ready to be stacked with wine. And then that kind of slowed down. So then it's like, well, now we have to continue to pivot, pivot, pivot. And then we're seeing that new pivot now too. Of, you know, I don't really care for that term of going back to normal because normal, I was never normal. My existence is not normal. And so I really do not like that term, but it's like a, just another pivot back into creativity of reconnecting. And so we started doing um, virtual tasting. So I'd pour up wine in a little two ounce or four ounce bottle, and then we got to meet a winemaker over Zoom. And that was 
has been really awesome um, because we were able to, we just did a Zoom tasting with a winemaker all the way from Australia. So it's given us this opportunity to connect all the way across the world where Keegan would have never just flown in to the shop for a Friday night tasting, right? So um, I think that I got, I was really fortunate um, in my 2020 time, I had a really close group of friends that were really understanding. Um, like I said, we had a lot of tough conversations, but at the end we just wanted to meet each other with that comfortableness and I maintained um, you know, a small social life where I know a lot of folks didn't even get that opportunity. So I'm grateful um, and it just continued my motivation of um, giving back, mm -hmm. you know. As you mentioned, obviously, George Floyd and the, and, the, and the effects after the protests, I'm curious, did you notice from your perspective any, was there a noticeable change in, in any of your intera wine interactions during that time? Did, did anything change about the way you were, people, what, what people asked of you, what people wanted to know, or the way you were treated? Yeah, you know, I think we're still living, you know, kind of in this pandemic zone too. So not only with the George Floyd murder, but with the rise of um, AAPI hate crimes. I think that was um, something that is really scary and it, it does fall into where you work. So um, there was people that wanted to know more about um, BIPOC winemakers. Um, there was definitely people that did not want to talk to me when they would come into the shop. I mean, I dress like this little skater kid, but I know a lot. I know a little bit about wine, you know, and I'm not hard to talk to. And so I think that um, people people have their own work to do. And um, I think it was just challenging to see that they're just not getting it. You know, I've I've had still have those conversations with customers too, just even about masks. Um, sometimes race comes up, and that's really challenging because it's also usually a white person asking me about race and um, that's not my job. They can go talk to other white folks um, about that and I can be allowed to talk to my friends of color um, about race too. So I think there's been a really big shift in seeing that and having again that tough conversation of like this is actually like I can't answer that for you. You know or I don't feel comfortable talking to you about that um, has been hard but it's also like knowing your worth and that it's not your responsibility. So you talked a little bit about kind of the sort of the kind of the rough outline for the future of Rootstock. I'm curious, uh, as you look out ahead five, ten years down the road, what, what do you hope to see from it? What, and what are some of the kind of the milestones along the way that you're looking forward to? You know, it's so brand new, and I think having that first event. Um, I had said it to a friend, I was like, I'm just going to get this first event over with. And he's like, you're not getting it over with. You're just getting it started. So I'm like, oh, shit. You know, like, I think <laughs> um, figuring out, like, what it can look like five years, ten years. Um, you know, one year ago, I really thought that my life would be in a completely different place, especially my position in the wine industry. But I turned what I thought that I was going to get and thought that what I was going to have, I turned it into something that I wanted. And seeing that motivation in myself um, has been really important. So giving that self-love of like, again, all those, all this time of all this shit talking, I'm putting it into action. And I think um, I can have a really creative brain, and I think that I can have a connection across the nation and across this, uh, the world. And I think again, it's just like highlighting those voices. So 
Um, you know, originally it's all about Oregon wine, but blending into California, going over to Australia, like Washington, like highlighting those voices there because there are those communities there that need that. So I think for me, long-term goal would be really cool to see this rootstock expand out of Oregon. And what about Beyond Wine? Beyond Wine? Hell yeah. <laughs> I'm a sociology major. <laughs> I would love to see it go Beyond Wine because, you know, it is about wine, but it's mostly about um, the people. So it's like bringing, it's empowering the people. Um, and that's what's really important to me. Um, and that was something that was really talked about too at our event is that I spoke a little bit about wine. I gave you some good facts, some stuff to chew on, but then I really wanted people to connect with the folks at their table. And I wanted them to hear different perspectives of the wine that they were tasting because that just leads to all kinds of other conversations. And um, it's just, yeah, I would love to see it expand past wine. Beyond Rootstock, what else for yourself personally as you look ahead, what are you kind of seeing for the future? Oh God, <laughs> mom's here. <laughs> <laughs> what do I see for myself? You know, I don't, I, I, sometimes people ask me that question and I really don't know how to answer that. I think um, thinking about the future, I want, to be content, I want to be um, connected to my community. I want to always be meeting new people, um, and I uh, want to continue to live in the moment. And I think that sometimes that's why it's hard for me to think about that question. Mm -hmm. Like, I think when I hear that question, I'm like, oh God, like maybe I should buy a house, or I should do this, or I should do that. And those are all material things. But when I look into the future. I picture myself. I want to continue to grow. I want to learn more about myself. I want to be an advocate for other voices. I want to be an activist. Um, and I just want to have fun, drink some good wine. <laughs> I like you, you talk about, you kind of use revolution and, and activist and all those terms quite a bit. And I'm, and I'm curious for you, is it? What's the what's like the ceiling? How much difference can you make? I mean, as you look at what's what's like a, what's 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 your goal for making like a reasonable amount of difference in, in the industry? And what would the industry look like to you if you had made a difference in it? Oh my gosh! I don't Sorry. know. I'm gonna probably start crying thinking about that. <laughs> I just think that there's a lot that people are holding on to in the industry, and what it would look like for me is if people just let go, like just. You know, you know, you don't have to work so hard to just be true to yourself. I would love to have this blanket of softness over the industry where they were like, oh yeah, you know, they, they are reminded that we can talk about wine in a different way. They are reminded that there are more communities and cultures out there that can be their best customer. They wanted to be reminded constantly that their work is not done yet because my work is never going to be done. So. To see that and to have those people in power would be really awesome. I think, you know, true revolution is um, genuine change. And so to see more brown and black faces, more women, more uh, folks with disabilities hold positions of power um, is true re revolution. I mean, that's the representation of the community. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
the, the audience like that answer. That's good. <laughs> um, so, with all that said, what would your advice be to someone who was joining the or thinking of joining the Oregon wine industry, especially if it's from someone from a historically not Oregon wine background? Yeah. Um, it's just all about exposure. I mean, try wine. Don't be, do not discriminate against a bottle of wine. Um, and if you need help, like there are people out there. You know, what I'm starting is something that would be a resource. I want to be a resource for new wine drinkers where, you know, what do you want to learn? Do you want to work in the wine industry? Do you just want to be a consumer? Do you want some guides to, help you read a wine label when you're at the grocery store. Like, I think that there needs to be more resources like that because they are completely out there. Every winery knows wine like that, but they just don't want to give those tools to people. I mean, these are free tools, right? I learned everything I know about wine because of exposure. And so the best way to learn about it is to just find that, you know, expose yourself to wine and to new experiences. And that's the best way to learn what you do and what you don't like. And what would you say, what would you tell, tell some of their biggest challenges are going to be? The biggest challenge is going to be that um, some wineries will not want you to participate. Um, the biggest challenge is going to be that wine is going to make you feel like you do not belong. Um, but that's a lie. So go ahead and call those people out. Let me know who they are so we don't send anyone there. <laughs> I think that, um, yeah, I think that it's, the wine industry is the most intimidating um, beverage part like of our world, right? Like it's, beer is different, um, but wine holds this class and this, um, and it just holds this value that I don't know who made it up, but I mean, it can be really intimidating to people. And I think for a long time, people will, won't drink wine or even try one because they really think it's not for me but it is for you, you know, it's not for you. Here, try this gold chain labeled beer bottle of Riesling. It's light, it's bright, and it's a little sweet. So it's, you know, also don't talk shit about wine. Like everybody likes what they like. It's just like food um, and it's just like music and it's just like attire. Like I like what I like. And I think just dropping that judgment um, is the way that we can really break down those barriers. Yeah, I guess I just want to ask, like, why do you think diversity is so important in the wine industry specifically? It's all about representation, you know? Like, for me to see someone that is a reflection of, you know, that's of something different again, like in the sea of whiteness of how I connected with Bertoni and exactly why I connected with Akiko is that I've never seen anybody like that. Usually I'm looking around and around and around. So seeing representation and, and diversity in any part of our world is always going to be important, right? People talk about Oregon and Portland specifically about being really white and like, yes, it is a white town, but they're looking in the wrong places. There are communities here and you're just looking in the wrong place. So diversity is important to everyone. You know, to, it truly benefits everyone. It's just like building a ramp for accessibility. Everybody can get up a ramp, but why are we only building stairs? <laughs> but I want to know what you think. Why? Why is diversity important? Um, for me, I think I had a, I'm from Arizona. I'm from Arizona, and so when I told a lot of people after high school that I was coming to Oregon for wine, they were like, 
so you're just going to a white place for like, the white <laughs> industry? And I was like, you know, I think it's there and I think it's slowly starting to change and I yeah. want to be a part of it. Yeah, I mean, like, you, you are a rootstock, right? Like, your existence is your resistance in the industry. And I think that that's what the most important thing is, is that if you didn't choose to be here in Oregon, then we wouldn't have your voice yeah. or your face. You know, your whole perspective, like, it is, it is valued here. I'm here yeah. to tell you that you're, you're valued. Thank you. So that's all the questions that I have for you. Okay. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? No, that's great. All right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your answers, for your for your time, and for your thoughts, and for the revolution. Yes. <laughs> all right, for the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Love that, Rich. And, and we're going to let you off the hook. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.